Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today is a podcast episode that tackles the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I, in all disclosure, I really did not want to <clears throat> tape another podcast on COVID-19. There are many other healthcare topics that I believe we need to cover, but the recent few weeks with the uh, new variants, as well as the increase in number of cases and deaths and hospitalizations, despite vaccinations, as well as some of the um, controversies pertaining to kids and vaccinations and side effects and myocarditis, have all necessitated taping a new podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic. And for this, I've asked um, a previous guest on the show that has been on this show, as well as my older podcast, Outspoken Oncology, to come back and hopefully, you know, again, uh, identifies the areas that we need help with as a general public. Dr. Emily Landon, who is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Chicago and the executive medical director of infection prevention and control, is going to join me on Healthcare Unfiltered and answer many questions, hopefully practical questions that you are all thinking about. As you know, um, the goal of this show is to help listeners understand nuances and really answer the most um, questions that have practical implications. There are no political bias here. It's really only facts. And again, some questions may not be answered. It is okay to have uncertainty. It is okay to admit uncertainty. It is okay to realize, you know what, sometimes we don't have the answers, but this is what we really think is the best thing to do. And I think one of the things I honestly miss about uh, the medical community prior to the COVID-19 pandemic is that sense of humility, is that sense of recognizing that sometimes we do not know the answers. Because what I see on social media and pretty much on any public domain that sense of we know what is right and what is wrong. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. You know what? Sometimes we don't know, and it's okay. Frankly, this is the art of medicine. In medicine, we many times uh, treat patients despite uncertainty, despite not knowing all the facts. We still have to exercise judgment and provide patients with the best care that we believe we can provide. And this pandemic is no different, except the scale obviously is significantly larger. Anyway, I really hope that you'll enjoy this episode of COVID-19 pandemic questions and answers with Dr. Emily Landon from the University of Chicago. Before I air this episode, I would love for you to, um, again, uh, subscribe to the show, uh, either here or on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to rate the show, give it the number of stars it deserves, write a brief review if you can, and refer a friend or a colleague to the show. You can always check out all of the episodes uh, on, of the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast on my uh, website, www.chadinabhan.com. Okay, folks, well, without further ado, Dr. Emily Landon discussing COVID-19 on Healthcare Unfiltered. Okay, well, she's back. She's back, Dr. Emily Landon. 
Uh, I'm really very excited, and uh, I am going to embarrass her a little bit before we uh, we talk about COVID because she, yes, I know, Emily, because you won some very nice award in the Chicago Magazine, and I know we're going to talk about COVID and everything, but I, I would be reminiscent not to say congratulations on uh, on this. You know, just remember, Emily, this award came after you appeared on Healthcare Unfiltered, so Causation and correlation here. I think. I think. I believe this was part of the reason you got the award, right? I think there's no way to disentangle the podcast from the award. To be honest with you. <laughs> well, really, congratulations. I think um, uh, you won award as uh, I believe one of the most influential healthcare, or or I think was not just healthcare, right? Like, uh, tell us about this. Uh, just like I love it. <laughs> It was a Chicago win of the year, which is not something that you really think you're ever going to be up for as a doctor, right? And it's um, it just they just emailed me one day and um, and said, "Hey, we picked you," and I was like, "What?" Um, it was great. I mean, it's it's really it's a huge honor, and I really um, I really appreciate that people in Chicago, at least you know a big chunk of people, seem to think that the messages that I'm trying really hard to get out are meaningful and um i really liked the tagline it was the voice of reason and i i thought that was that's what i've been trying for that was a really big that meant more to me i think than anything because well, you, you are you are responsible for a lot of my online subscriptions to hulu and amazon and all that stuff <laughs> but um um maybe just to level set maybe there are a few people who have not heard you before just tell us what what you do at the university of chicago so i'm an adult infectious disease specialist who is also the hospital epidemiologist i study healthcare provider behavior, and I look at habitual behavior, which is usually just hand hygiene and stuff like that in the hospital, but now it's more things like masks and things like that. But um, I'm also responsible for our high consequence pathogen program. I run the infection prevention program, and I now run COVID programs or advise COVID programs in the university, all of our affiliates, and a number of different companies, organizations, all over the city of Chicago. And I've been, you know, helping to advise the governor. This is, you know, this pandemic has been a big, unnecessary and really very unfortunate career opportunity. I'd rather just go back to doing hand hygiene. Yeah, and one of the things that you do that you shared with me, and I can see that in the background of your screen is uh, you, and, and this is pretty fitting actually for an ID specialist, yeah. isn't it? So you do some soaps, you, you actually do soaps? Like what do you do? Yeah, I make soap. I make uh, I make a lot of things. I need um, a creative hobby that I can sort of turn my brain off from the, I mean, there's a lot of decisions to make in medicine, as you know, and uh, it's nice to have something where the decision you're making is if you're gonna make it pink or yellow, um, as opposed to whether or not some, you know, <laughs> the other stuff. So yeah, I make soap. I also make candles, and um, I actually learned how to sew during the pandemic. It's it, and I garden. You know, anything that I can just get my hands into and do something where you can see a result. That's. You know, I do. Like, I do like the idea that an infectious disease specialist does make soaps. I think that's pretty cute. <laughs> well, thank you very much. All right. I love making so, soap. So let, let's. Someday, maybe. Someday when this pandemic is over, maybe I'll even sell them on Etsy. But yes, like they're just background decoration. Yes, and uh, and we are going to make sure that uh, uh, you are going to get a healthcare unfiltered T-shirt. But let's get let's get into in, into this. So, uh, well, uh, first of all, I honestly did not think that this will be in December. We're taping this December twenty twenty one, and um, I didn't really think I'm going to do another episode on this. But um, over the past 
several weeks, there have been a lot of this new variants and some issues pertaining to vaccines and so on. So I thought we should focus on some practical questions that have, pra that have implications to the people who are listening. And we want to solidify this with facts where facts are available. I recognize sometimes you may have to make decisions without having all of the facts because frankly, sometimes we just, you know, there are unknown unknowns. We were talking about this before we, we, we went on the air. So let's start by, um, in terms of the vaccines. Um, so how many people, uh, uh, stats like in the US have had two shots? Do we have that? Well, we thought we did, but it turns out we don't. Um, so it sounds like there's some new criticism of the way that CDC has been collecting data that suggests that they may have been miscounting second doses as first doses. So we're still not 100% certain how many people have received two doses and how many people have received one dose. And, and we know very little about how many people have received a booster. The, the best data we have is that we're probably somewhere between 50 and 65% of Americans, all comers, that have received both doses of of COVID vaccine might be, yeah, probably about that. And like one, one in six, one in seven, maybe one in eight have that are eligible have received a booster. It's important to note that that data about what proportion of individuals in America have gotten their vaccine includes small children who can't be vaccinated. So if you include only those who are eligible to be vaccinated, it's probably slightly higher, but what counts in terms of things like herd immunity and transmissibility and sort of that cushion from uh, high level transmission is uh, how many people are actually vaccinated. Although that cushion, as I, a little foreshadowing here, that cushion that the vaccine provides in terms of blunting the transmission by like keeping many people from getting sick, that's gone right now. Or it will be, if it's not gone in your area right now, it's gonna be essentially for all intents and purposes gone in the next seven days probably. So why? But why? If we have, I mean, for example, last year we had obviously no vaccines, like, you know, fewer people, if any, were vaccinated, right? And, and, and we had even shortage of PPEs and all of the other things we were dealing with. Now we have more people vaccinated what, by whatever metrics. We have more PPEs. People, I think for the most part, they probably exercise more caution. I realize it's COVID fatigue, but I would have expected things a little bit different. Yeah, so they were getting different. They were, we were doing better. The first thing that we have to do here, Chadi, is we have to separate cases and, and, and then bad outcomes. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna try my best not to just say deaths because one of the big problems of this pandemic has been that we focus on this 1% death statistic. And those of us in medicine know that there are a lot of things that can happen to a person that can completely change their lives that are really bad, that aren't death. And so we've got to remember long COVID. We've got to remember heart failure after COVID. We've got to remember lung, lung needing lung transplants. I can't tell you how many, the majority of the patients I'm seeing in the hospital now when I'm on service, because most people can take care of COVID now without having to call an ID specialist. The, the people that I'm seeing are the ones that are having super infections because their lungs are completely eaten alive from COVID and they need to be cleared of these infections before they can get a lung transplant or the people with heart failure, the people with um, that end up with complications because of that. It's pretty bad. And that is um, some of those people don't even recognize that their conditions are from COVID. So that, that's just the bad outcomes. Let's just put all those together. That's different than the number of cases. So the number of cases is a, a function of how well our vaccines keep us from getting sick at all. And 
we want the vaccines to keep us from getting sick at all, because if you're getting sick, you're going to be able to transmit, period. If you're catching COVID and you are replicating enough virus to have a positive test, you're going to be able to give it to somebody else. That is different from just ending up in the hospital, clogging the system and dying of COVID, right? So um, cases were pretty steady decline, looking good. I felt pretty confident that once I knew we'd see some kind of bump from being indoors in the winter, that we'd see more cases transmit because frankly, the dose you get of COVID is higher when you're indoors than when you're outdoors. And the, the dose matters in terms of overcoming your vaccine. And so you can see more breakthrough cases when people are indoors. So I assumed we'd see some increase, but I did not expect, as did many of us, we did not expect Omicron, a, a vaccine, a, an escape variant, an immune escape variant to come on the scene this quickly. And to be perfectly honest with you, I did not expect that it would come along, like paired with in the same variant, such transmissibility. I expected that we would have one or the other that we would see an escape variant that would move slowly through a vaccinated population that would be sort of this smoldering threat. I did not expect super fast, super rush, rush thing that we're seeing now. So is, is are the vaccines not effective against Omicrons? Not at all, really. Not at I all. would say, I mean, I think let's, uh, the ask, we don't really know, but I will say this. Uh, it looks to us like a vaccine is maybe present a fully vaxxed individual having received two doses of a messenger RNA vaccine, maybe 25, 30% reduction in the likelihood that you're going to pick up Omicron from somebody else in the room that has Omicron. Um, but that's kind of made up for by the fact that it's it's so you can get it at such a low dose. It's so much, such better affinity for the ACE2 receptor. It's just really easy to bind. And so that that's part of why it's breaking through but there's also the immune escape that it the vaccines just aren't working very well and the, these estimates of how much the boosters are going to help are i think very optimistic and i would love to say that they are true but i think i think the data is a little sketchy i mean for the most part like i said the vaccines are minimally effective against omicron but I got to tell you, effect, minimally effective at you getting Omicron. But the truth of the matter is that people are having really mild disease when they have breakthrough infections. Like they're not even getting as sick as they did with breakthrough infections with Delta if they're vaccinated. So vaccinated people are going to be fine. It's going to so be then, like then, a bad then, cold. Yeah. So then, um, so, okay. So <laughs> there's very little we could do, right? I mean, I mean, for Omicron, I mean, so it's highly transmissible. We got the vaccines and you know, the illness is not going to be that severe. So why are countries closing, like the Netherlands closed, like I, I countries are closing, travel? I mean, what are we going to, I mean, it looks like, so it's, it, is it like a common cold, like Omicron? We don't know yet. So we know that the vast majority of vaccinated individuals who get Omicron are going to be just fine. We're really worried about the unvaccinated individuals and the people who got vaccinated last year and who are very old, or the immunocompromised people, because if you expect so that because of the way the epidemiology is, so if you look at the, this is a complicated, um, there's complicated math. And if you really want to know all about it, you could read, you know, Trevor Bedford on Twitter or on the news has some great ways of explaining this computational epidemiology stuff. But the bottom line is that when you look at this, in order for Omicron to move through a community, 90% of people will have to get Omicron. And that is a lot of people. 
if that's a, that's way more than the original COVID. Now, that's probably not going to be 100% true. We're going to miss some of those cases. So what you see in South Africa is probably an underrepresentation because at some point you run out of tests when so many people get sick and people just stay home and, you know, whatever. So the bottom line is that if 90% of people have to get sick and maybe... 1% of the unvaccinated are going to end up, or maybe 10% of the unvaccinated are going to end up in the hospital because the, the severity of illness in unvaccinated appears to be the same as Delta in the most recent stuff that's coming out of Europe. I so see. unvaccinated are in the same boat that they were in with Delta. Vaccinated people are going to be fine. But the vaccinated people like us, we're the ones who have to take care of those other people in the hospital. And we are the ones who have to you know, deliver the mail or work at the Target or, you know, go to the grocery store. And you have to do something to slow that spread or else you won't have enough people to work in your hospitals. We're already seeing that is a problem. There's not enough beds in any hospital in, in the United States, much less in Illinois. There's fewer than 10 percent of ICU beds are available, were available as of Thursday. And that's only that's gone down since then. We have a huge staffing crisis in every hospital in the city. I met with the city hospitals and the, and the state and the city health department on Friday, and we were all talking. What we're talking about is how to get people back to work sooner after having COVID, or can we let people with COVID keep working? Because we don't think we're going to be able to weather this. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, and I, you know, I don't know what your position on that. I realize, um, you know, as you know, I mean, several months ago, there were some mandates at many healthcare institutions asking people if they're not vaccinated, that they pretty much get laid off. Um, and they were actually let go. And, um, you know, uh, we can debate um, whether this was wise or not. I always feel that having a nurse who is not vaccinated, who is wearing proper PPEs and do proper hand hygiene, definitely better than not having a nurse at all. So yeah. um, do you feel that the healthcare institutions who mandated people to be vaccinated made a mistake in hindsight? No, I think that there's I think that there's an ethical and moral obligation to require people working in healthcare to be vaccinated. However, it is a practical problem. And you're right, it's a practical problem. It is the wrong message to say that we don't require vaccination. However, most places are um you know, if you had a real reason not to be vaccinated, then you can like you're a religious um, exemption or a medical problem. We test you every week and we let you keep working and put you in PPE. And that's what we do. If you have no real ADA accepted reason to not get vaccinated, you need to be vaccinated. It's the same. I mean, we they all have to be vaccinated against rubella to work there. It's just that that happened at the time of employment. So people who didn't want to do it and are still nurses just didn't do it and didn't get a job there. So, I mean, I think we have to, yes, it's not the right, it's not a good time to be losing healthcare workers. That, but I think that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's not a, not a good time to be losing healthcare workers, but I also think it's, it's not a good time to be setting the precedent that we're gonna be more lax about this. So I don't, I think, I think a lot of people are stepping back from those requirements now, and that's real confusing for the public and for other people, because if you're not mandating it, then why should we mandate it? But the reality is that you need healthcare to be there if you get real bad chest pain one day. You need a nurse to be at your bedside, yeah, because and that's you, all that matters. If you think about it, I mean, last year, last year when we did not have vaccines, um, you know, I mean, nobody could get the vaccine. The nurses still worked and they actually wore PPEs and the physicians did that. And I, 
you know, I, I don't have statistics, but I really doubt that any of the healthcare workers transmitted the virus to patients who were hospitalized. Maybe there was, I just don't have that. There, in some, uh, there are some, there certainly are some systems that don't do a great job of preventing patients from getting COVID from their healthcare workers. Um, but that's, uh, that's a problem with, back to what I really want to study, which is healthcare provider behavior. That That's a problem with healthcare provider behavior that's hard to change and difficult to mandate and, you know, quality, like period, anything to do with quality is really hard to move the needle on. So that that aside, the vast majority of American hospitals did a wonderful job and hospitals are the safest place to be with COVID. The vast majority of COVID transmissions that happen in the hospital happen in the break room. When people are smushed, because you know, and most patients don't know, but most doctors and nurses know that the, the patient rooms are, and the patient care space takes up the vast majority of the room in a hospital. And the break rooms and work rooms for the providers and the other people are these tiny little cubicle offices where you put like 10 people in a room made for two, you know? And so they're in there and that's the only place they can go to eat lunch or to take a drink of water in an eight hour, 12 hour shift. And they gotta take their mask off to have a, you know, water. And then they're spreading to other people who are in there doing the same thing because there's just not enough space in our workspaces, in hospitals, in the backstage spaces for people to spread out and be able to safely do that. So that's where we're seeing spread in hospitals. It's universal. Everybody's having this problem. We are not so much seeing it from healthcare workers to patients or patients to healthcare workers anymore. And so I think there is a good rationale for saying we don't need COVID infected people in our workplace because they're going to infect our other healthcare workers. That's rational. Um, but I don't think that the reasoning behind that is that they're going to infect the patients. That's not happening really in general. There are some, but it's, it's not common. Uh, you know, since you mentioned, I gotta tell you, <laughs> uh, I don't know you may laugh at this, you may not, but, but there are so certain things that sometimes as, as an observant that kind of, you know, make no sense to me. So I'll tell you a couple of things. A lot of things don't make sense uh, about this. Yeah, but there's one, like, for example, right? What we say, we say there's, and I actually tweeted a couple of this about this because uh, I was trying not to be funny, but it's really dark comedy, I almost think. But people, like the mask mandates at restaurants or on airplanes. So as long as you are eating or drinking, uh, it is okay. So you wear the mask when you get into the restaurant, and then you sit on the table and you take off the mask. So... It appears to me as if we're saying, you know what, the virus concentrates at the entrance of the restaurant, but somehow once you sit on the table, you're fine. On airplanes, as if you can like on a four hour plane, and as long as you're eating for two and a half hours of them or drinking, I think it's okay. As long as you're not eating, you have to put the mask on. So I, I'm just trying to like complete logical yeah. thing. Like what, how does this make sense? Like does the virus- It does. I get it. I see where your like sort of mental <laughs> block is here, and I'm going to unblock it for you. Good. So um, restaurants are different from airplanes, so, so let's start there. But let's keep in mind that the masks that we put on our faces, I know you've seen those pictures where like air comes out around them, and oh my God, they're all over Twitter and like TikTok, and, um, and like they show the little smoke coming out all around them, so masks don't work. That's not how it is, actually. Your breath is actually like um, a jet of air, and most of the aerosols are caught in the mask because they have have to be liquidy they have to be somewhat wet in order to be able to carry the coronavirus so that mask really does a very good job of holding in what you have so when you take your mask off it's not like a two-hour cloud of COVID is being left in like released into the air the other thing that you need to know is that the amount that you breathe each minute is your minute ventilation right is what's filling up the air so if you have your mask off 
for 10 minutes of a four hour flight and you have COVID, you're putting a lot less COVID into the air than if you have it off for four hours. So it matters the amount of time. You're, it's the amount of concentration. Imagine a sink, right? You have um, water going in and you have water coming out the drain. And as long as you've got enough water leaving the drain, your sink isn't gonna fill up. Well, the amount of COVID you're putting into the air and the amount that's coming out from the ventilation system needs to stay in balance. And you can do that in most places, especially airplanes, if people are keeping their masks on the vast majority of the time. And that, that's how that works. In restaurants, the balance is a little bit different because you most of the time have your mask off. And that means that that sink is getting full faster and the drain has to be larger or the ventilation has to be greater, which is why people like me are always saying, open all the windows in your restaurants, open the doors, eat outside, right? But you can't do that in the dead of winter in the Midwest. And so people are eating inside. This is pretty dangerous. And I think um, my I think we need to <laughs> this. Is, no one doesn't expect this. I think we need to close restaurants and bars right now if we're going to get through this. And and I think we'll probably end up doing it in two weeks when it's too late and it won't make as big of a difference. We should do it today. Um, but I don't think we're going to do it because nobody really has the ability to do that. But 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 we've tried that, Emily. Right? I mean, like we're, yes, and it helps. No, but but I know it helps temporarily. My point yes. is, I think. I, I get what you're saying, and maybe I'll. So we, we need temporary help. This is if this is like it is in South Africa. It's gonna it's gonna run through here. A doubling time of two days. I just heard that you were talking about how hard it is for people to wrap their heads around um, statistics. I just heard Ali Velshi on TV this morning say that she he reported what Rochelle Walensky said, the head of the CDC. She said the doubling time is around two days. So if you have, he says, so if you have 200,000 cases at Christmas, you could have 400,000 cases by New Year's. This is a, a, that is, that is the absolute under, that's how people cannot wrap their heads around it. If you have 200,000 cases at Christmas, you have 400,000 cases by December 28th. You no, have 8,000 yeah, by yeah. New Year's. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 there's no question. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the closure or the lockdown is you know when we tried that it helped temporarily and then eventually things obviously you, you see what happened so let's say you close things today how long and eventually once you open then you'll get not the omicron you'll get something else as well i guess what i'm trying to say what do you say to people say okay we get what you're saying but all of these are temporizing and eventually viruses are going to be viruses and um it's going to happen yeah, I think in this case, the, the, we have to remember the reason that we shut things down. And I do not believe we need a stay at home order. I just think we need to close things where people have to be unmasked in order to participate in them. Um, the, the, the reason to close things down is not to stop transmission. It is to spread out the curve. Remember, think area under the curve, right? You've got a big peak. And then you have, there's always a long tail, right? But because of network effects, because you end up just reinfecting, you you have mostly contact with the same people. So once a small network has been infected, your the vast majority of your R, your uh, your other contacts are with are already used up because they already had COVID. So you have to find someone to spread to outside your network. That's why there's always that like longer slope on the back end, right? I don't know if that made sense to anybody, but that's epidemiology for you. Anyway, the bottom line is the area under the curve is going to stay the same. In other words, the same number of people are probably going to get sick. We're not going to prevent any real infections. We just need to spread them out a little bit so that we can keep up with it in terms of testing, in terms of healthcare. Because right now we're at a place now, We at the beginning of last week, we had 40 some patients admitted to our hospital with COVID. We have 96 now, more than double in a week. 
And are they have, all are they all unvaccinated? By the way, ninety percent are unvaccinated, and eighty five percent are unvaccinated by our last um, estimate. Eighty five percent unvaccinated. The other fifteen percent are largely really old or immunocompromised. So we're not seeing people, young, healthy people coming in with vaccinated that need hospitalization. And we're probably not gonna see that. I'm gonna be perfectly honest with you. Most of us are probably going to get Omicron. And that is something we need to wrap our heads around. We're not gonna be able to avoid it, but we are gonna be able to avoid, we need to avoid giving it to our immunocompromised patients. We need to avoid giving it to our high risk, older family members, our immunocompromised friends. Those are the people that need shielding. And the way to shield them is by giving them lots and lots of vaccine to keep their antibody uh, numbers super, super high. And then the other thing we need to do is we got to slow that curve so that when they do get sick, we can give them monoclonals and we can give them Paxlovid when it's available. And we can give them the treatment and the care that they need, because right now we're in a situation where we be, we're having trouble. Our left without being seen in our ER is so high. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And every ER is reporting the same thing. So where are those people going when they have chest pain? They're not. They're going to die at home. And we're hearing anecdotal stories of that already. It's starting all over. Michigan's having a real issue with it. We're going to see more of that before we see less of it. And so there is an indication to, to sort of spread that curve out. But we're, we've already acted too late. There's probably not, it, we, if we don't, it was too early to do it five days ago, and it's probably going to be too late in another five days. And it's not going to happen. So, 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 um, you know, I read a lot of uh, folks on social media sometimes say it didn't have to be this way. What, what, I mean, what could have people done? I mean, I think we've done, you know, I mean, as you said, I mean, uh, frankly, I think we're more blessed than folks in South Africa, you know, in terms of the percent of folks who got vaccines. I mean, and, and you know, if you look at people in Africa, in the Middle East and so on, well, that was with few exceptions, but in general, you know, we had like 60% probably who've had some two doses. Like what, what could we have done differently? We have a wealth gap in terms of vaccines here too. Actually, I think Omicron is going to be worse for us than it was for South Africa. Because in South Africa, the proportion of individuals that had already had COVID or had had at least one dose of vaccine is much greater than the proportion of individuals in the United States that have had one or the other. And that means that we have a higher susceptible population that are at risk of severe disease. And that is going to be a problem. So the, the things, what could we have done differently? We could be much better about masking. So the mask, masking everywhere reduces the risk that the person that you're gonna be in that restaurant with has COVID. And so masking at the grocery store actually makes you safer in the restaurant. But, so I, we need to mask. but, I, but I think but I think people said, <laughs> I mean, the, the whole, like people were saying, if you get vaccinated, that's why, you know, you, you can yeah. take off the mask. So if you're gonna- mm. But nope. then the problem we have is that then, yes, that's true. Up until now we have Omicron, you know, and your vaccine is a lot less likely to keep you from getting a mild illness. So now you've got to put your mask back on. But the problem is that we have no way of telling who's vaccinated and who's not. So the unvaccinated were the ones not wearing masks. So this is the problem is that we have a dis a cons there's a there was a concentrated misinformation and disinformation campaign to try and keep people from following public health advice and getting vaccinated. They were so they were uh, they used all this stuff to say that I don't know what I mean, I don't even know how this happened. But for some reason, we ended up with a big chunk of our population not believing that a mask was a reasonable ask of them, even though it is 
quite literally the least you can do. And getting vaccinated, it, people are so against making sure that people are vaccinated when they take their masks off that we just we just let it all go. And we didn't share our vaccines. We didn't have a global vaccination program. We just assumed that everybody was going to want vaccines. And it turned out that we were wrong. And so then we relied on the vaccines and then we decided, well, I guess we'll just let the unvaccinated suffer the consequences, but of their choices, which is, you know, I guess in some ways I can see that as being rational, but when they're all, when they're making that decision because they've been lied to, it seems a lot less fair. And then um, if we can't take care of the reg the vaccinated people when they have chest pain or cancer, then how are we like, we've not done what we needed to do. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know, masking is a whole different thing. But I mean, I think there are a lot of people who have said that it's you know the the how effective they are is probably not how much we thought they are effective. I mean, ultimately, the vaccines are the ones who are that are really going to. The make masks are incrementally really important if you don't have the vaccine. Yeah, if you've got the vaccine up until yeah. Omicron, the masks are less important. But if you don't have the vaccine, that mask is your lifeline. They no, are no, the same I, yeah, most yeah. important thing to do. I think from a, they're not perfect, but we shouldn't yeah, abandon things that aren't perfect. I think from messaging perspective, I believe I've heard that a lot. That you know, um, there were a lot of folks who said you know vaccinate and still wear a mask. And I think, again, remember a lot of people who are listening are not going to be ID or physician no, no, in healthcare. So when they hear that, right? I mean, somebody come this is like, okay, so wait a minute, you're telling me I need to get the vaccine twice and still wear a mask. So it's not some, you know, yeah. it doesn't resonate. You know, it should because masks are not a punishment. Masks are not a penalty. Masks are not, they do not have a value to them. The only reason they have this political and emotional value is because of this concentrate, this, this disinformation campaign. They are no different than wearing a shirt or wearing shoes or wearing socks. They are just another thing. And I am not saying don't ever eat in a restaurant because we have to have a mask mandate. I'm saying wear your mask at the times when you possibly can so that you can make it safer for people to not wear a mask, to be able to go to restaurants, to be able to go to the gym and work out without your mask. It is not a major sacrifice to make. And it is absolutely reasonable, but we keep seeing it as I got my vaccine. Why can't I take off my mask? The, the mask is not a penalty for not being vaccinated. The mask is just a thing that we're doing to help our neighbors in this time. I'm not saying you need to wear a mask at home with your friends and family in your house. I'm saying in public places, like it cuts down on your number of close contacts with other people that could potentially result in COVID infection and masks work. They kept our healthcare workers safe for a year before we had vaccines. They were, they are, as soon as we got enough of them, people stopped getting sick in healthcare. They are absolutely functional. We need better ones for the average American. We should probably be providing them. Yeah, no, yeah I mean, I think, I mean, yeah. obviously they work. I think I'm talking the incremental benefit, like the, whenever you talk about how much do they help. Yeah, but the incremental harm is nothing. Yeah, I don't know if we know that. The no, mask I, does nothing damaging to you. It is not that hard no i hear you uh let me ask you let me ask do you seem like in a year or two years are we gonna stop wearing masks i don't know <laughs> yeah, eventually i mean look i'm the wrong person to ask about that because i you know we're I, we're never going to stop using masks to protect people in healthcare. we're going to be as careful as possible and we're only going to use them when we need to use them and when we can't know when to use them we're going to tell everybody to wear them because they literally are nearly no cost 
They are an intervention that is nearly no cost. So as far as I'm concerned, they are the last thing that we should get rid of with respect to COVID because they make things better and they are not that hard. But I think a lot of people have added this emotional, symbolic value to their mask that is just not there. I, I think in a hospital setting, to your point, I don't see them going away, to be honest. I think yeah. like in, for the healthcare workers, I believe it's going to always uh, happen. So let, let's talk a little bit about um, the vaccines themselves. Are you, uh, do you, I mean, are they doing another vaccine for the Omicron? Like the, we know the current vaccines are not obviously functioning or working as good as we thought they would. So are manufacturers working on a new vaccine for Omicron? Well, there's mixed messages. So the manufacturers have said that, yes, they're going to make an Omicron-specific um, uh, dose. But Fauci came out last week saying that the the uh, boosters are working, so we don't need one. I think that was premature on his part. I think that's part of a government, the government really wants to rely on the boosters. So I'm going to talk about, I'm going to just say why people are saying the boosters are so good and why I have a little hesitancy. The only data we have about boosters is there's two reasons why boosters would make things better. One is this idea of affinity, um, increased affinity, immuno, immuno affinity, like that you just get better, more heterogeneous um, immunity from an additional dose. And it's above and beyond just the additive amount of, of antibodies you're going to get. That's probably true. That probably is true. And it probably helps. But the, um, <clears throat> the amount of antibodies you get is really what most people are relying on. So when you get a, a vaccine, what happens is the first thing you get is this big boost of neutralizing antibodies. And then the T cell immunity, the memory B cells, those come a little bit later after the vaccine. And those are what keep you out of the hospital. The memory B cells, the T cells, they, they make what's needed in order to keep you out of the hospital. But those, those massive neutralizing antibodies, that's what keeps the COVID from attaching to your lung cells in the first place. And you need a very high amount because these are sort of, imagine them as being nonspecific from the COVID vaccine. And Omicron is very different. So I like to explain this by saying, imagine that you make antibodies, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, purple from, from the vaccine, right? It's based on the original coronavirus and it's very good. All of those red through, through purple are attached to the original coronavirus. But with Omicron, only blue and purple are able to attach. So you need to push the number of all your antibodies up. So you're going to have a ton of useless red, orange, yellow, green, green antibodies, but you're also going to have more blue and purple. And that's what's going to keep um, you from getting sick with Omicron. So that's why they're saying boosters are a good idea. It's an incremental increase in your neutralizing antibodies. But what we also know is that those go up, they peak about four to six weeks after your vaccine, and then they decline pretty rapidly. And that's why we see this waning effect where people get breakthrough infections, but they don't get very sick because the B and T cells, they stick around. So those that boost is where like Pfizer came out with its data saying that four weeks after they were 75, 85% effective at preventing infection, neutralizing antibodies. That's an in vitro study done with sera from people that were four weeks out from their and their um, booster shot. We know those antibodies are going to go down another four, six weeks later. So if you got, if you're like me, I'm immunocompromised, I got my booster in August. I don't have the same number of antibodies circulating as I did in, you know, early September. And so I don't think that that booster is going to protect me as much as somebody who had their booster three weeks ago, four weeks ago. But a lot of people in healthcare got their boosters eight weeks ago, 12 weeks ago. And I'm not sure that a booster is really going to help us in the long run. The, the government's telling you to get a booster because they expect the, this Omicron wave to be quick up, quick down. 
And they're probably right about that. So boosting now might help protect from that long tail time. But I don't think that if you got boosted, you know, 10, 12 weeks ago, that's really the best thing. I'm still con I'm still confused. If, I mean, if the vaccines are not effective against Omicron, <clears throat> we think the boosters are going to help? Or? They're less effective. It's not that they're not effective. Mm -hmm. You can't... Uh, uh, all, vaccines are not off and on. There's like a spectrum. And if you imagine the, the spike protein changes its conformation just slightly, it doesn't fit in the, the antibodies. Not all the antibodies that you made from your booster or from your vaccine are going to fit, but some of them will. And you just need more of them. And that's, that's why boosters help. But we don't know. And they're going to help a lot about a month after you got your booster. But if you're not in that window where you have the sort of highest concentration of neutralizing antibodies circulating around, then you you may still get a mild case of COVID. You're saying you're gonna be protected. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's tough. So how do you reconcile so if you so for example, so I'll I'll use myself as an example. My I got my first shot of the vaccine on February 18, 2021. Mm -hmm. So if I get a booster today, Am I not going to get my annual shot in February because they're too close? Like, I, I don't. You don't need an annual shot. You're just going to get a booster now. And we don't know when you're going to need your next shot. What we do know <clears throat> for immunocompromised people, cancer patients, people with autoimmune conditions, IVRA, that sort of thing, um, transplant patients, you need three doses as your original series, right? You get two doses three or four weeks apart, and then you get another one eight weeks later. Most of us waited until we, like most, because that didn't come out until six to 12 months later, we, you know, we didn't get it till later. Now they're saying that we should get a fourth dose for immunocompromised people at six months after your third dose. So uh, I think for immunocompromised people, it's going to be a cadence of every six months until we have this under control. I think for healthy people, they, there's a lot of rhetoric that sounds kind of like after three doses, you're going to be done. I think that's probably not right. I think there's a good chance that you're going to need another dose at some point, but I don't know what the point is going to be. This is a, a this is an as you need it sort of thing. This is a PRN vaccine right now. It's a little bit tough for me to wrap my head around the PRN vaccine. Um, uh, I, it's, uh, but, but basically, if we get But it makes sense if you think about it as boosting your neutralizing antibodies. Yeah. Like you just need it to get your antibodies up. Yeah. Um, if you get the if you get the booster now, then I don't need the annual shot. No, there is no recommendation for an annual shot currently. What are your? Do you think we're we're moving towards an annual shot or? I have no idea. I can't tell you what's going to happen next week. Much less like what's going to. I don't know. I mean, if we see more of these, I think we're going to continue to need vaccines. And I think that this is a different way of using vaccines than the way that we used them in the past. But that's because we got them so much faster. So the fact that we have them earlier means that in the past, by the time you got a vaccine, the vast majority of the population already had immunity and you were just protecting the next generation. Right. But um, this is different. And yeah. so I'm not sure how you use vaccines to get you to endemicity faster. And no one really knows how to do that yet. That's why I'm saying it's like a PRN vaccine because we, we need to figure that out. We need to, again, you know, make the airplane while we're flying it. And, and that's, so you'll have to accept a certain amount of uncertainty because it is never been done before. Yeah. 
Let's talk about kids and vaccinations. Because uh, oh. uh, I know, but but you know what? It is really. Oh, no, I mean, it's good. We didn't talk about it. It's just. Yeah. It, 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 is a, it is a tough subject, but one of the reasons I have to admit, Emily, that I'm frustrated about this is because we should be allowed to ask questions. And I think sometimes, like what I've noticed on social media, if I dare to say I am nervous about myocarditis, especially in young boys, I will get the entire Met Twitter uh, all over me as if I'm an anti-vaxxer, and, and clearly I'm not. So I don't know how we got there where we, you know, science is all about asking questions. <laughs> I don't know how we got there, but let's talk to about facts. Um, clearly, there is a risk of myocarditis. It's been published. There is lots of data out there. So it, is it fair to, whenever we talk about children, when you weigh the risk and benefits? So in other words, uh, let's talk six months ago when, when we're talking about all of this, you know, a lot of people were vaccinated and all of that, and they were concerned about myocarditis. Um, to, to dissect this for us in terms of myocarditis, the risk, and, and maybe, I don't know, have an editorial comment. Why are we, why are people so, so, uh, um, you know, very... Why they jump all over you if you show any questioning at all? Yeah, because I, I can tell you, for my own children, I'll, I'll go on the air and I say it, uh, I vaccinated them, but I did not do it three weeks apart. I was extremely nervous about that. And I actually waited six and a half weeks between the first dose and the second dose of Pfizer. This is the first time I actually say that publicly, because frankly, if I had said that publicly, I promise you there are at least like 20 accounts will jump all over me that I'm anti-science. Well, I'll come to your rescue on that one, but not necessarily for the reason that some people may think, right? So let's talk about the myocarditis risk and the uh, in kids to begin with. So there, this is there are people asking those questions. There was a big presentation at an ACIP meeting in I think November, may have been the end of October. I would encourage anyone to go look at the slides from that meeting. A huge presentation looking at myocarditis in adolescents and young adults after receiving the um, the vaccine. And the most important takeaway from that is that there is a very small risk of myocarditis in um, especially boys age 15 to 17. And then the second highest group is 12 to 14, right? So in that, and then also from 18 to 23, so older boys as well. So in these age groups, the risk is still extremely low. It's one in hundreds of thousands, one in thousands in certain groups, right? So it's very, very low risk, but here's the kicker. Of those people that got myocarditis after the vaccine, um, almost all of them, like 99% of them resolved within five days with nothing more than ibuprofen. The likelihood of getting myocarditis if you get symptomatic COVID is on the order of like, two to 10% for males in that age group. And they don't resolve. In 60 days, only 50% were resolved, something like that. I can't, maybe I'm getting that number wrong, but it was, it's not five days, right? So they didn't have return to normal ejection fraction for a month or more. And some of them didn't ever. So if you are comparing the risk of the vaccine to the risk of COVID, the vaccine wins every day of the week. It's reasonable to be concerned. And you want to watch your kids after you get the, especially boys after they get the vaccine, and you want to be careful. And if your child has a history of myocarditis, I would talk to their cardiologist about it. But I think, and, and that may be a time to reach for Johnson and Johnson, actually. 
Um, but but why not, not even like give one dose of the mRNA and just forget the second? I mean, that's enough. Because of one dose isn't enough, really. And remember, if they get COVID, they are getting, they are, there are a lot of kids that are getting uh, my, myocarditis. It's more than what you want to see. It's, I saw my first case of MISA this last week on service. So that's the multi in, multi inflammatory, multi organ inflammatory syndrome in adults. And it was a 22 year old guy who had COVID, completely healthy guy did not have, maybe had a little hypertension and wasn't vaccinated and uh, didn't even really know he had COVID, but we can see his spike proteins and his N, N, uh, his spike antibodies and his N antibodies go up after um, a respiratory illness, after having uh, contact with people that had COVID. And then he came in with um, uh, VTAC and new onset dilated cardiomyopathy, huge, just now he's I mean, he's, in, he's got a lot of other complications. Bottom line is that this this is not this is not not happening. This do, is do, do you think we have uh, do you think we have enough data to know vaccine associated myocarditis? Like, I mean, I think there was uh, some yeah. papers on VARS that actually were, and and they were criticized. And some of I mean, I guess yeah, the VAERS, You got to be careful with VAERS because those those have to be so in the in the systematic analysis that they presented at the ACIP, they went back through all the complaints on VAERS and looked into all those cases. And this is the actual data that they came up with. Some of those kids are really that they were um, reported as having myocarditis and VAERS had already had reduced ejection fraction or had some other medical problem. So you have to keep your your head around that wrapped around that. And you know, you look at VAERS and you see seven thousand people died within thirty days of getting a vaccine, and you're like, oh my god. 7,000 people died. But then you realize that 150 million people got a dose of vaccine. And for 7,000 of them to die within 30 days, well, that's much, much less than what we would expect as the normal death rate of human beings. So there's, it's, it's just, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta look at the denominator. You gotta compare apples to apples and groups to groups. You can't just look at a sheer number and say, oh no. The, the the series I read for vaccine so myocarditis was like one in six thousand, one in seven thousand, not one in a hundred thousand, right? It's, um, yeah, it depends on which group you're talking about. That fifteen to eighteen year olds, it's one in about ten thousand. Now, I mean, I think that that number was a little. That series they think that you're referring to is a little bit was very early, you know, and so um, more people have been vaccinated since then, and so you can the numbers are smaller, um, but it is recoverable. And the vast, vast majority, 99% of them are going to get better quickly. Is it fair to say that we don't know the long-term effect of that though? Like, because they haven't been follow-up data. So if you get vaccine-associated myocarditis, we don't know whether there's any similar to when we talk about long COVID, because I mean, COVID has been only two years. So I don't know how long we can tell. Is well, it similar or? Those kids return to normal ejection fraction and normal life within a few days. I'm not sure what more we're going to do with that if you can measure a normal ejection fraction i mean that's pretty good a lot of remember it's also important to remember that we forget that a lot of viruses cause transient myocarditis in kids it's not as uncommon as you think it is and you don't worry about them getting you know echo virus or coxsackie or whatever you know and so you're taking that risk every time you send them like there are some things that are just sort of baked into the risk of of life now i get i get that this is a vaccine it's an optional thing but i think um the risk of of myocarditis with COVID is, is just so much greater should kids get boosted so i don't know i think so i think if we want to avoid them getting sick yes 
I think that it's, uh, but it may not be the most important thing to avoid them getting sick. That's the part that I can't, re I don't think there's enough data yet. I think if you've got kids who are, for example, I'll, I'll get my child boosted as soon as it's approved for 13 year olds because I'm immunocompromised and I don't want him to get even a mild case of COVID, right? Because that puts me at risk. Um, I think there are times when you want to do that for kids where it's worth the risk because the risk of them not getting it could put my life in jeopardy. And, and it's not that, you know, it's not that I'm not willing to lay my life down for my child, the complete opposite. I want to be there to take care of him. Um, so I think there's, I think there's reasons why you might choose to do that as a family, but I'm not sure that it makes sense to mandate it in children. I think um, there's much more evidence that in adults, it's perfectly safe, it's not a problem, and it can be used basically as a PRN, uh, not as a PRN, not like every day, but you know, like we can do that safely without expecting long-term consequences. The vaccines just disappear in, in your body within hours of getting them. Yeah. All you're left with is natural immunity. And for adults, it seems like the message is get the booster. Um, and then once you get the booster, you don't have to get your annual. You just wait like until additional recommendation. But uh, yeah, so just wait till another recommendation comes out. Yeah. I see I see a lot of um, folks posting and talking about, well, I know of people who had the vaccines, had the boosters, and, still and, got they, COVID. and they still got COVID. And I'm thinking... Well, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. What do I get from a message like this? I mean, you, you, you know, it's going to happen, right? I mean, what, what else can you do? Oh, it's going to happen a lot. The next few weeks, you're going to see a ton of people that have been fully vaccinated and boosted get but COVID. Why, why post that? Because I think that gives wrong message to people. I think why if post I post anything, honestly, like 90% of what I see on Twitter, I think, why did you write I, that? I, I, but I honestly, don't you feel like if you're... If you are not vaccinated and you saw a post of me saying, well, I have, you know, vaccinated, boosted and wearing a mask and got sick, you're going to look at me and say, OK, good for you. I'm not getting this. It's not going to help it, me. It depends on what the purpose of your social media posts are, right? <laughs> so, like, I, I, mean, I think I think it depends on what you're trying to do. I like that. I like that. You know, I'm going for the likes and the retweets, Emily. Well, then post it because you'll get lots of those. But like, I mean, I think if you're if you think of your Twitter as like some sort of information source and you're trying to convince anti-vaxxers to get vaccinated, then that's not the best post. Yeah. But it's not. But I don't think hiding things from people is really the best post either. Like we need the, the this gets to your original question. Like, why do people jump down your throat? Because we don't we. Oftentimes, we think that the best way to make everybody do what we want them to do is to just simplify the message, that we just need to leave out the messy stuff and tell people, just do it and stop asking questions. But my experience in helping work with people, uh, helping get people to wash their hands, in parenting my child, in generally in life, taking care of patients, is that that is never the right answer. That, that yes, a simple, everybody says you need to have your SOCO, your, your single overriding concern that you're communicating, your communication objective when you're talking about health communication. That's true. You don't want to have an email message that has like an hour long, you know, you know nobody's going to read all that. But there has to be a way for people to get real answers to their questions. And the problem, I think, with social media is that um, even 280 characters isn't enough to get across the yeah. nuance of this. And a lot of people who, I mean, I, to be honest with you, like if we're talking about the mechanics of my car, I don't care the nuances of why I need a brakes fixed or whatever, just fix the GD brakes, right? You know, this is, um, 
I don't want to know the nuances. I just want to do it. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to be mad about it. But that is not, a lot of people are treating COVID like that. And unfortunately, even though they have other things in their life they need to worry about, and there's a lot of other concerns and there are things that they want to focus on more, that's not going to work. And so if they want, if you, if you self-describe as, or self-identify um, as someone who just wants to be told what to do, then there should be a place like on, there should be a CDC, like, I wish we had a way of saying, if you just want to be told what to do, this is the simple version. If you want the answers as to why or what's going on, here's where you get it. And, and we don't really, we just keep shouting our own simple version and okay. not really explaining it. Just a couple more questions, I promise. I know we're taping on Sunday, and yeah. but but a couple of things. Number one is um, testing asymptomatic people on yeah. uh, mass. Um, I have my own views. I'm not going to really mention it, except I, I think I'm extremely skeptical about just taking random people and keep testing them. In fact, I would even make an argument. I have no idea why I need to test when I travel internationally. I should be able to show my vaccination card and if I'm just following whatever you said, like wear a mask in the airplane, whatever it is, I'm not sure why I'm tested 24 hours. Like logically, truthfully, it makes no sense to me. Why are we testing asymptomatic people and mass? Like, you know, I, I, I literally saw a post on social media of an individual who is a physician who said that when his kid comes home from college, he will not hug him until he tests negative. Yeah, but the next day he could test positive and you don't get a test that day. Exactly my point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to say, I, this is, I think, I can't figure out the sort of philosophy behind it. There certainly are times where routine testing of asymptomatic, un, especially unvaccinated individuals is essential, probably essential to limiting spread and slowing the spread. It's not going to save, it's probably not going to save anybody's life. It's not going to prevent everything. Testing people doesn't prevent anything, really. It just makes sure you have early awareness of a cluster, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and I think the we have oftentimes used, so I think there's a number of things here. First of all, pre-Omicron, vaccines do a really good job of protecting people from COVID. And if you do a routine PCR testing of, of vaccinated individuals who are asymptomatic, you are, according to the the data of, you know, you know how this works, it's a pretest probability and the sensitivity and specificity of the test indicate that you are more likely to have a false positive than a true positive when, uh, pop when the uh, community prevalence is below a certain number. So there, there are certainly times where it is a bad idea to test people who are asymptomatic, who are vaccinated. Then there are times when you have unvaccinated people living in a dorm together, where you have the potential for a very large outbreak that could be really dangerous. And that's a time when it may be a good idea to get advanced warning of an impending situation so that you can take measures to stop things. But you need to be able to do something. You need to, you need to be getting that information in order to take an actionable step. So in a college like University of Chicago, where we were testing everybody in the dorms last year, when we started to see an increase in a dorm, we would literally shut down that dorm and put everybody in a stay-at-home order. That's, that is an action that we can take to stop things from spreading in an area. But that when you're looking at this international travel testing, I, I don't know what it's doing and the travel bans. Like, I don't, I don't understand. They're not, they're not doing what they need to be doing. Now, 
Should people be careful when they travel? Should there be, um, I think honestly, they're just there to be hurdles to make it harder to travel, to discourage people from traveling for fun. And I, I think that's the wrong way to do that. And I don't necessarily, I think there are some times when it's necessary to test people, but honestly, if you wanna make travel perfectly safe, you need to do a quarantine after you travel or you need to know exactly who you were in contact with, use electronic contact tracing, that sort of thing. I don't, I don't know, there's a lot of options. And, but I think this like test before you leave to come back to Chicago, because if you've been in a red state is a little bit ridiculous. But I have to say, we need to rethink the way we think about testing as we go into this Omicron period because your vaccine is not as protective. And so your pretest probability of having COVID is much higher if, than it was before. The other thing to say is that there's a big difference between PCR tests and antigen tests. PCR tests have a lot more false positives. They're way more sensitive. Antigen tests are going to miss more cases of COVID, but they are certainly, if you imagine that those results have about a 12-hour expiration time period, like they're good for 12 hours, you're negative for 12 hours, and that's all you can say from the test result, they're really good to use before a gathering. If your family is gathering with um, multi-generations, you do Binax now is on everybody at the beginning, as long as it's just one day. But if you're going to stay for three or four days, then that Binax now expires. I mean that you know. I mean, I'm traveling internationally next week, and and I have a PCR test scheduled, and I'm like really upset about this because it could be false positive. I mean, it could be false positive, and well, it could be true positive now because I know, like, but I'm vaccinated. Like you know, there's a lot of things in, but I'm asymptomatic. I've uh, I, you are I'm, now. I'm and I'm vaccinated, right? I'm just saying, like, do you test every day forever? Um, let me ask some you. people think that's a good idea. I think there's also a little bit of a bias that some of the people that recommend these testing programs are epidemiologists and we really like data. Yeah, and somebody probably <laughs> is making a lot of money who is making the manufacture these tests, right? Let well, me three quick questions. Number one, please tell me the schools are not going to shut down. I can't tell you that. Oh no, um, no, I can't I can't do it because I think that um there are not again this is a practical consideration there are not safe ways for kids to be unmasked at lunchtime in the middle of winter but mental Period. health for my children they will go nuts uh you know i think the problem is that there are still families out there and they're you know i don't want i want schools to be protected but again if we don't close our restaurants and bars then we may have to close we have to you have to close you have to do something right i don't know that it's going to be i think it's going to be quick if they do have to be at home but i suspect that there may be some schools that do remote classes for a couple of weeks quick about treatment of covid uh, a lot have happened since the last time we spoke and i know we can that's like a whole episode by itself but i think at a, at a highlight uh, Frankly, the last time I spoke to you was remdesivir was pretty hot and all of these things. <laughs> um, I know uh, steroids, uh, well, let's say for hospitalized patients, what are you doing? Or for non-hospitalized patients, what are you doing now? Hospitalized patients, remember, are further through their infection, don't have as much active replication happening, and most of the damage to their cells have already been done. Those individuals are getting remdesivir to clean up whatever's left of the of the replication. They're getting a lot of steroids and, the, and maybe some... Uh, uh, tocilizumab in order to modulate the immune response so that you don't do more damage in the their immune system can do more damage in the cleanup but uh there we're seeing you know we're seeing a lot of super infections with molds and that sort of thing so it's a lot of supportive care that's what's happening in the hospital still not a great prognosis if you're in the hospital um better than it was but not great um if before you get in the hospital there's a lot of new options right 
So there's monoclonal antibodies. Some of them do not work very well for Omicron, um, but uh, and the ones that do are in short supply, surprisingly. It's, I how, how, do I, how do I get that? If I get COVID, I call like what, my primary care? Like is that? Yeah, so we have a whole clinic that does um, our, our monoclonal infusions. I call and him. you call me or anybody else that if you're, wherever you're a patient is probably your best location. You can also search online for the health department's monoclonal antibodies infusion centers. But at University of Chicago, if you get sick, we will actually call you and ask you if you want monoclonal antibodies, if we have your test. And um, so that's, you know, and we're doing infusions every day. So that's what I would do if you are at all at risk of any complications. Now that's monoclonals, but I'm worried that we're gonna run out of the ones that work well for Omicron. Uh, second thing you can do now is there are new drugs that are becoming available, right? They're not really available yet. There's molnupiravir, which is not as exciting as we thought it was gonna be and has a lot of side effects and is still not really sure if we're really gonna have it or not. There's not very many doses available. That may be an option. It's about a 30% reduction in hospitalization in high-risk patients. Uh, Paxlovid is gonna be approved shortly. That's a, it's a protease inhibitor plus ritonavir, very familiar to people like me because it's very similar to some HIV meds. Um, stops replication, works really well, but has a lot of side effects that uh, it has a, some cross, it's a CYP3A, I think, oh, pharmacist, please don't kill me, inhibitor, whatever. It doesn't work very well with a lot of the, um, with a lot of the anti-rejection drugs that um, transplant patients are receiving. And we're only going to have a little tiny bit of it. So only people that are going to be eligible to get it, it'll all go through the state. The only people that will be eligible to get it are going to be probably transplant recipients and people actively, stem cell transplants and people um, really seriously immunocompromised, probably not even like chemo patients. Uh, or people like me won't be able to get it. And then there's going to be, there's a new, newly approved monoclonal antibody for prevention of COVID that works for Omicron that you can take in advance. And it is very, very good at shield. It's um, well tolerated and can be given to highly immunocompromised patients. Problem is that there's a very, very precious little of it. And the entire state of Illinois is only going to get about 1800 doses total for the entire state. And so it's going to be really hard to decide who deserves it, well, deserves, who's going to get it and who's not. It's not going to be something where your doctor can just call and get it. Um, the state will have a list or registry and they'll start giving it to people. And I think that's all going to happen too late for Omicron, really the peak of Omicron, which is going to come fast and furious. Do we so know if they work? Do, do we know if they work against Omicron? Yes, they do. Uh, Shield does. Um, and so I think uh, if you get Shield, if somebody offers you Shield, if you are someone who is so immunocompromised that somebody calls you up and says, would you like Shield?" your response should be absolutely yes, please. Thank you. I can do that right now. Okay. Uh, I guess maybe my last question is, um, how does Dr. Emily Landon rate the performance of the CDC and the WHO as well as their communication? And the reason I ask is because when I first had you on my previous podcast, you actually called uh, COVID-19 a pandemic even be three weeks before the WHO actually called it. Um, I, I'll admit, you know, I mean, I'll say it, I have been very underwhelmed, frankly, with the, um, even with the current CDC. And, uh, you know, I'm sure Dr. Walensky is great and smart, uh, smarter than me, but I have been very underwhelmed with the messaging and with some of the communication coming out. But you're closer than me to that that world. W what are your thoughts? And maybe were there opportunities missed on a policy level, national level, that um, 
the country could have done better, regardless of the administration in, 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 in office? I want to disagree with you, Chadi, but because I, I know that there are really smart people. I have friends, really smart people, really great people. I really like Dr. Walensky at CDC, and I know they are working really, really hard. And I know that our public health counterparts are working really, really hard um, and are not not naive. They, they know what's really happening and they know what needs to happen. But these 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 places are not set up for this massive honestly right wing disinformation and like death threats and like refusals and there's actually now i think that their calculations say that if they do things like say national mask mandate that that people will do things that are more dangerous in order to protest that and so there's this they have to add into their like epidemiological calculations they can't just say what they think is best because it could backfire and make things literally worse so I don't think they know what to do. And I, I think they have they have clearly not been saying what the science like what is absolutely needed. Everybody needs to wear masks, period. Um, right now. And everybody should be vaccinated and vaccine mandates should be a dime a dozen. And um, we shouldn't even need them because everybody should be lining up to get vaccinated in order to avoid getting COVID. But that's not happening. And I think that they're making a mistake by relying so much on the vaccines and not doing other measures. I think that um, over the counter antigen tests are ex I don't understand. I don't understand why it's $25 for me to get two Binax nails and I can barely find them. This is that's insane. That is literally the one thing that would save Christmas for so many families. And I can't like I bought four boxes over $100. I found four boxes. And I just don't I don't understand why that is the case when in the UK, they're just mailing them to everyone. And everyone has like 20. Like that would be that test is not over, that does not have false positives. It's gonna miss some cases, but certainly it would be really helpful before people get together. Like all those you know, holiday gatherings for people's workplaces, they need to be doing these tests at the beginning of them. I didn't, it's not that important when there wasn't Omicron, but now that there's Omicron, it's really essential. And for unvaxxed people, that'd be really good. Anyway, so I don't, I think there's been a lot of mistakes, but I don't understand how to fix them either because I think there's a lot of political co confusion. And I think there's a real concern that even messaging about what is the right thing to do will be met with hostility and a concerted effort to do the opposite, which could literally kill thousands of Americans. So nobody, oh. everybody's paralyzed. And the WHO I think is doing better. Um, but I think, I mean, they were way too slow in the beginning. I think now they're being much more, but nobody's listening to them. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> All right. Well, you get the last word always as my guest, but, uh, as you, as we conclude, I think one of the things that I would like you to, to maybe say, where are we going to be in, in two, three months from now? Um, uh, I, you know, I'd like one day to have you on the show and talk about soap and other things, but it seems yeah, we can like, do that. Uh, I know. I would like to get rid of COVID first. There is no zero COVID. Would you agree? I mean, we'll all yeah, no. have COVID forever, right? Well, yeah, we're heading toward anemnicity, um, and we're going to get there at some point. Um, I think that in a few months, things are going to be a lot better. And I think that's because it, we're going to know what to do with Omicron. We're going to have a plan for it by then. We'll understand its epidemiology in our communities. And, um, you know, when it, when we had Delta and Alpha, you know, other countries were weeks ahead of us. Now, I think that 
the UK is like six days ahead of us in terms of what our numbers look like. And so we can't learn anything from anybody else. So we're just sort of on our own again. And I think that in three months, this is going to be largely, we're going to be on that tail end, right? And it'll be a long tail, but we'll have a better idea what we're doing. People will be recovered. A lot of people will have had COVID and will be more immune than they were before. They'll have hybrid immunity from their vaccine and the COVID, and they're going to be okay. That we're not going to see as many, you're less likely to have long COVID if you've been vaccinated. So I think that's really good. I think people are going to be more comfortable. We're going to be more tolerant of COVID, period, because right now I think there's still a lot of people that are terrified of getting COVID. I'm less afraid of getting COVID and more afraid of people that are unvaccinated getting COVID um, or healthcare not being able to keep up with everything. And I think the weather's going to be better and people are going to be outside again. And I think we're going to see um, things going better. And I, I really wanted it. I, it felt like the waves were decreasing each time. They were less intense. They were less long. They were less deadly until we got to here. Well, as always, uh, can't thank you enough, Emily. Really, it's, it's always no, a pleasure to uh, have you on. I am 100% certain that a lot of folks who are listening to you are going to um, benefit from what they heard. I like we keep it practical, pragmatic, and and frankly, you know, I mean, some of the things that we talked about may not be 100% certain because we just don't know. We just have to still exercise um, whatever we think is right and hope that we're on the right track. We may not, yeah. be, but what can we do? Just remember that some of the things that are being recommended right now are precautionary, like because we don't know what's going to happen, we have to avoid the worst possible outcome. And so we're going to do things to avoid the worst possible outcome. We just need to make sure that we pull back from those things as soon as we don't need them anymore. Yeah. And that's where we're not always so awesome at that. And that's a real a legit criticism. So but for now, be careful over the holidays, please, everybody. All Let's right. have a happier 2022, maybe. Happy 2022 to everyone. Take care. All right, everyone. Well, uh, this was a very important episode I taped with Dr. Emily Landon from the University of Chicago. I hope you found the conversation uh, helpful, dynamic. I hope some answers uh, help you. Uh, I realize that uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. I realize many questions we cannot answer, but hey, we do our best and we try. And we sometimes folks may disagree with some of the recommendations, may disagree with the answers, but uh, hopefully the disagreement is civil and we're able to uh, do the best that we can to help people in need. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, refer a friend or a colleague, write a review if you can, and uh, you can check out everything on www.shadinabhan.com. You can message me there. You can also send me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. The other uh, thing I want to make sure that uh, that you do is you can actually uh, subscribe to the um, uh, show on YouTube. I air all of these on YouTube, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Look, before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with one of the sayings for Albert Einstein. Learn from yesterday, live for today, hope for tomorrow. The important thing is not to stop questioning. Until next time, take care.